Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. I'm going to start with a question that somebody emailed me. They were driving. And so I said that I would scoot this one in. So they were driving and emailing. That's not no, good. they emailed me because they knew they were going to be driving. And so they, they wanted to be safe. So it actually is a Understood. good thing. So, so this is dear Dr. Rob, as a child, I was sexually abused by my brother and two cousins, maybe more. I know some of this took place around uh, 10 years old, but I think it may have taken place when I was younger. Also, I do not, I did not disclose this for over 40 years and only after getting caught seeing prostitutes. I have hurt my wife in the past when I went to the strip clubs and even with her seeing deep or even seeing her deep pain, I did not stop. And after that time is when I started seeing prostitutes. Since I have talked about my sexual trauma, I have not had the desire to act out. I've been very comfortable with my outer circle behavior. Since talking about my trauma, I've gotten closer to my kids and actually hugging them for the first time ever. I just concentrate on being the best I can. Now I want to be the best husband and the best father I possibly can be. My own little motto is be the person you needed when you were younger. My question is, am I actually um, a sex addict being as I have not had the desire to act out in seven months, or is there possibly some other underlying issue? I'm giving all to my relationship now. My wife is everything to me, and I don't even understand how I could do what I did to her. So a couple of things. I heard the word seven months, I have to say, and I'm thinking about what have we've not been acted doing out in seven months. Yeah. Right. And then I think about what we've been doing for the last seven months. And it's mostly different than the way we've been living our lives before. You know, I think COVID March, April, May, I got to count on my fingers, March, April, May, June, July, August, September. I mean, you're not that far, you know, and COVID, I think for a lot of us, for me anyway, has been a, um, incredibly supportive at home, lots of, lots of love at home, lots of structure at home, lots of being around people I love. And so for me, and I know if it's true for you, it's, it would be a lot, it has been my desire to act out much less in the last seven, eight months, because I have a lot of support, a lot of structure and the stressors are so immediate. And I have people around me. It's just not the same as pounding the pavement. So just a thought, you know, and I'm saying this because we have a saying, I'm sure Tammy knows this when when I'm working on myself, that my addict is in the corner doing push-ups. So while you are having an experience of being open and feeling good about yourself, and you know, as should be, you're working through trauma, you're working on these issues, your family knows you better. But I would be curious, and we don't know from this answer a question, but that's fine. How long have you been doing this? Because doing the recovery part, because I know that my, uh, I know a lot of people I work with, um, they're so scared and sorry about what has happened. And then when they get into the recovery, they're so kind of excited about having a place to go and knowing what they need to do. And then they tell their spouse. And so they're relieved of that burden of, of uh, secrets. And all of the pressure leaves them not really feeling like acting out very much, but it will be back. It is always back. So does sexual trauma drive our desire to act out? Not directly. I think that stressors that remind us of the trauma or relationships or situations, we will act out over that. So congratulations, you've taken a lot of burdens off of you, your secrets, your hiding, your intimacy has improved, um, and you're feeling more open about what happened to you. But people do trauma work, Tammy can attest to this, for years and years and years. 
And people spend years and years working through their addiction and years and years trying to figure out how to have healthy relationships. So while we have breakthroughs, the road gets narrower. And so what might be really big for you now and just, oh, I don't have a desire to act out, I'm feeling better, later down the road, when you don't have all the support, when it's not new, when you run into other stressors and you're out in the world, um, I wouldn't carry this belief that it's just gone and I'm done with it. Not if you've done it for you know half a life. Uh, Tammy, do you have thoughts about that? No, I, I and I agree. And I, I think saw you going peeling like this. Back, <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, the peeling back, you know, the layers because you know you even mentioned, um, you know, I was around ten years, but I think there may be more. So, so, so you kind of had this glimmer that there was more. And while yes, the immediate relief that Dr. Rob was talking about. But, you know, the next time something starts bumping up against, then then what happens? So um, and, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, am I a sex addict? Does it matter? I mean, at some point, does the label matter? You know, if what you're doing, you know, to for recovery is working, you know, right. whatever. So, OK, mm -hmm. on to the next question. So if you've got questions, throw them in the Q&A and we're going to keep um, we've got lots already. So so I feel like I'm asking too many questions. But to be honest, it seems that some answers just make me feel more confused. I'm the partner of a sex addict. We've been together 31 years and he's working recovery and has been clean since mid-May this year. So I'm kind of going back to what you just said earlier. I, le I learned everything. So he says in June, I have struggled and feel I should be feeling more comfortable by now. I worry about both of us. I have two questions today. Is it normal for an addict to be able to spend time in a brothel um, and not have sex unless his one lady is there. I've heard um, this compared to other addictions and like the alcoholic would not go to the bar and not have a drink. And also would like to know, when did it shatter the fantasy if the affair partner prostitute began texting that she was suicidal, sharing her health problems and her past relationship hurts? Seems to me it would become too real. Finally, I will end by saying that my husband is doing all the work he can, but he does not check in on me daily. And he also gets angry when I talk about it. So that's wow. a lot. Well, first thing I I'm going like on the, the broth. I'll, I'll take I'm the first sorry. half and you. I'm sorry. Okay, keep going. I'll take the first half and you can take the second. How about that? Sure. Because I'm uh, the one I'm curious about is um, 31 years. Well, I'm sorry, three. How long is there clean the beginning? The first part. We have been together from, 31 years. Uh, right. And he's he, he said he's been clean since mid-May. Right. And what's but then the it sounds like he's still going to the brothel. And he says, I've learned right. everything in June. So Tammy was right when she said, this sounds like the question we just answered. Um, I've been working on my own personal recovery for 35 years, maybe longer. I think I'm still at times very difficult, really challenged, not the person I want to be. This is not a this is not a destination. You get off the bus and you've recovered. This is a, from trauma or from addiction. This is a lifelong process of learning and growing. And so when you say mid-May, I sort of saw Tammy like that's not that very long ago. And speaking of you, the, the spouse, and I know you're going to have more things you can pull out of this question, Tammy. Um, I, I I've written some books about this, and I would recommend maybe you could think about them. One of those called Out of the Doghouse. Um, and the reason I wrote that book is because men often have little empathy or don't understand what it takes for partners to heal. One of the things we've learned in our field over the years, and we've been do I've been doing this 25 years. There's a number of people now who really been around a while in this field, sex addiction, relationships. And one of the things we've learned is that it takes partners a lot longer than we ever really thought 
for the end, them to begin to feel trusting again, feel safe again. And so you said you entered this by being confused. Is that the person that says every time they come in here? So let me be very clear. Number one, there's nothing you as a partner could ever have done nor can ever do to make this person uh, act out with sex workers or anything else. You can be fat, you can be thin, you can be young, you can be old, but the decision to go to that is their decision. There are a lot of other things they could do if they're unhappy, that's their decision. Um, you get the right and you have the right, I think, to be angry for a very long time. You've been married for 31 years. For 31 years, you've been lied to, you've been cheated on, you, you know, and, and whatever else and kept secrets from and all that. And now it sounds like you're expecting yourself to turn around in six or seven months and say, okay, I should be over this now. I'm feeling better. And, you know, your life has been destroyed. Everything you believed in, you can't believe in anymore. And you're looking back at the last 30 years and saying, I don't know what any of that was real or how much of it or what we have now. Or So please allow me to give you the time. It can take a year and a half before you spouses are not up and down and up and down. And I hate you one day and I love you the next. And I want a divorce lawyer, but when can you go on a honeymoon? I mean, you guys are all, and that is the nature of what happens when you're profoundly betrayed is that you Sometimes you love them. Sometimes you hate them. You're, it's, you're ambivalent about this thing you've been so deeply connected to. So I would give yourself a while to feel really awful about this. And don't let, by the way, your addict spouse or whoever he was or whatever you think he was say to you, are you over it yet? Or I'm tired of you being angry or it's been six months. When are you going to get over it? No spouse should ever hear that from us because look, we, this guy put you through this for, I don't know, 20, 30 years and you're supposed to be over it in seven months. It's going to take a lot longer than that. And your feeling better is based on two things. I think one is letting yourself get, get support and feeling this and going through it. And the other part is who is it that you see every day at home? Is he going to support groups? Is he going to therapy? Do you see someone who's doing the things that tell you you can begin to relax and feel trusting, or is he still being the same person he's always been, but saying, I'm really working on this. You will know in your gut whether he's really showing up for this or not. The question about the brothel, and I didn't really understand that, Tammy. Maybe you could help with that piece. I, well, I can, and I, I have a question for you, because um, I think this is more of a therapist question, too, because um, if the prostitute began texting that she was suicidal and oh, sharing right. her health problems and all that, to me, I was going, like, doesn't that convert kind of into the emotional affair of, like, and now you need me right. and all of this type of thing? So it's, yeah. but I was thinking from a brothel standpoint, and, you know, the, it's, it's a business and they don't just have people hanging out. So, you know, I just don't understand how somebody could go just hang out at the brothel. I've, I have to say I haven't been, so I don't know. But on the other hand, I'm like, I just don't see that as being, you know, an effective business strategy. So to me, there would be some payment made for some services in order for somebody to take up space there. That would be my thought. But it would, still, would to me be hurtful and cheating to have him hanging out at the brothel. So, well, I had a friend when I was in early recovery who used to hang out at one adult bookstore so often. This is absolutely true. He would show the some meetings. They gave him a cup with his name on it. So when he was there in between whatever he was doing there, if he needed a break, he could have a cup of coffee with the guys who worked in the adult porn shop. And then he could go back to doing whatever he was doing. So we do learn to accommodate the environments that we're spending a lot of time in. But here's something I want to say to you partners who have someone going and seeing sex workers. 
I think the research is something like 75, 80% of men who go to see a sex worker aren't there for the sex. They're there to talk to somebody. And they don't want to talk to you because you have feelings and questions and issues. And they want someone who's going to talk to them like you did when you first met. They want to talk to someone without any of the pressures of kids or family or you're upset. They want a woman to tell them they're wonderful and they're great and they really appreciate it. And yeah, the sex may or may not come with that. But trust me, most of the men who go to see a sex worker are doing it because they feel I can't get this in my life and I want to go get this over here. So the, of course, not many of the men I work with have any idea how to develop intimacy with a partner. They just run into some other person to try to get that. And what they're doing isn't real either, because when you're in relationship with someone, you're paying, as Taffy said, and you know their job is to keep you entertained. And I can't tell you how many men I've worked with who say, you know, I finally got that sex worker to tell me that I was the one that I was the one who was important and special. She finally turned to me. Well, that's the day she realized she could raise her prices <laughs> and nothing against sex workers, but it's Tammy's and I don't have anything against sex workers. I've sold myself in my distant past, but um, you know, you do what you're going to do out there, but I don't think that there is any reason to think I've had so many guys come into treatment saying they were special. They were, they're just paying for it. And these folks, they know what to say. It's their job. So um what I worry about for you is that your husband or spouse has split the relationship so profoundly that he is emo deeply emotionally involved with a sex worker. And I see that all the time. And by the way, what we are attracted to in part in men and women who are in the sex industry is their vulnerability. They've been broken. They have issues. We can feel it. And so for this man to get her to say and do the things, you know, I'm sorry, for her to call him and say, I'm in trouble, I have a problem. That says to him, I'm important, I'm special, I mean something to her. That's more what he's interested in than what anything she needs. He just likes the idea that this woman who sees, however many men she sees, that he's the one that she calls because he's that important. And she's playing that. She probably calls every guy and says, oh, I'm so miserable, and maybe they send a little money and some jewelry. So, um, Tammy, anything else about that? No, I, I did put, uh, because you said he's um, clean. Um, I don't know what he's doing for his recovery, and you aren't, you know, 100% clear either because he isn't sharing. So I put the link, the next level one sex and porn addiction 101 work group starts January 4th. There is still room for uh, men to join that particular group. I would highly encourage him to participate in that. It will good, be a good foundation for uh, him to learn. So, okay, yes. next question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. No, um, I was just going to say to you folks, you know, we can't really do therapy. Like we give this away and we can't do it if we charge for it because I work in this state, Tammy's in another state. I had my license as a transfer. If you live in New York, the, the ethics of it, but we offer educational programming. So the piece you don't get in therapy, which is how do I figure out what sobriety is and what is a relapse and what's a trigger? That is all in the coursework. It's like taking a class at part. Pardon me, part of it is how do I manage my relationship and the conflict that I've created with my spouse? So there are really pieces of that in there. Um, so that's what Tammy was talking about. I'm sorry, I, I further- No, no, that's, that's very helpful. So, um, uh, and he does do expert consultations. If you want more information, contact me. Um, what would you say are the top three internet filters? Oh, I'm just going to tell you, if you go to, there, this is all on our um, resources on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. I'll put the link in in just a minute. Um, uh, but I, I'll tell you, you know, the, 
I mean, if you want to elaborate on filters versus blockers or something like that, but really there's a lot of information on our I, site. That's about a that. really good point, Tammy. And I can say something about filters and stuff, but what Tammy's going to drop in the box is, you know, on sex and relationship healing, that is all about free information for you guys, free groups for you guys is where we are now, basically. So we, I think quarterly, we check all of the, uh, uh, filtering and blocking software to see if we still like it, if it's still working for us, if it's still something to recommend. So we're pretty current. I would be on the site to look for that. I couldn't tell you personally, but our, our checkers know, but I will yeah. say this to you that, um, that there are different kinds of ways to block content, like let's say porn or whatever you want to block. Um, one is if you have a little child, you might want to go through a browser instead of Google browsers or Safari browsers or whatever you use. They're, they're like a Disney browser. And it means that you're in their world and they control everything you see because there is nothing accessible about anything they don't approve. So they might approve encyclopedias, they're going to approve, you know, but they're not going to approve certain kinds of content. You can't get to it no matter what. That's um, trying to think filtering, blocking. And I think that's blocking. Blocking. Yeah. Um, filtering, thank you, Tammy. Filtering is when you put in certain areas that you don't, you're on a regular, you know, you're on Google, but you have the software running and it says what words and what arenas do you not want to have any contact with? And, you know, if I had a seven-year-old, I could set that up. So nothing that I would want a seven, like it might be really cute to no, no violence, which maybe you had a 15 year old, you know, they're into, you know, some kind of video game they might. So Filters or something can be set up for the individual with specific words and phrases and areas around them that get filtered out and they don't have access to it or they, no matter how hard they try. And I think personally that that's a great way to go with a teenager, you know, or a young kid. Like you want, you don't want them to have access under 14 or 12. They shouldn't be able to access it. But once they're older and for sex addicts, I recommend tracking software. And what that does is if I was tracking Tammy, every time she types something in, if I was the person receiving it, I would see at the end of the day, every place she went. And I could see everywhere on her phone she went because she's putting the software on everything. I like this particular thing, tracking. I like it with teenagers and I like it with like older teenagers and with adults because I don't want to look over someone's shoulder and see what they're doing in, in the moment. And I also know that if you're an addict and you've put a filtering program in that filters out certain words, you're going to try to get around them. And I've had people putting in statues, Vetus to Milo, you know, just to get a picture of whatever. So I think it's better to say I'm completely responsible and accountable to whatever I do, but someone's going to see it. And by the way, I don't recommend that's your spouse. I would never make the partner who is receiving my tracking information, my spouse, because it's going to be very difficult for us to, for me to actually work on it and deal with it if I at the same time have to be managing my spouse's upset. So do spouses need to know? Absolutely. But first I process it with or work through it with the person who is receiving this information, which might be my sponsor or my therapist or my pastor or someone like that. Um, thanks. And all those things are on the site. You can look them up. Yes. I put in the chat the, the link to both the uh, 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 level one uh, work group and also to the resources page, which has beyond the filtering software, et cetera. It has lots of other uh, resources. There's a ton of information on sex and relationship healing.com, including Dr. Rob's sex, love and addiction podcast, which has over 600,000 downloads and counting. Um, but just a lot of resources, including the links to the drop-in groups um, and these webinars as well. Okay. Next question. 
my partner returned from treatment in November and has been relapsing every two to three weeks. My boundaries seem to cause him more distress than helping. What advice do you have? You want to um, in either interpret that or maybe put a, maybe give an example, Tammy, of what you think you're hearing. Cause that'd be easier for me to answer something more specific. Like what does relapsing mean? Relapsing for some of your partners may mean he's looking at somebody's butt again. You know, he's checking out that person again. That might mean relapse to you. Um, I don't know if that means relapsed to me would be actual behavior, like someone was touched or some, you know, porn was looked at. So I don't know what they mean by relapse. Um, any thoughts, Tammy? I'm H thinking whatever up. is in the, uh, went to treatment. So I'm thinking whatever's in the inner circle is problematic and relapsing. So, well, let me back up a step and say this to all of you spouses and to the addicts as well. I had someone come in and I was working with them. And they said, well, this is my plan for recovery. You know, here's my can do's and can't do's don't sorry, do's and can't do's. But I don't want to tell my spouse about that. I mean, that's between me and my sponsor. That's between me and my therapist, but what I can and can't do sexually, that's none of my spouse's business. Well, let me tell you, your spouse has every right to know what you can and cannot do sexually. If you're in a relationship why wouldn't they? They thought you were monogamous. That was what they believed. Now you've done other things. They need to know about that and when that might recur. So, and if you have a slip, by the way, if you end up for some reason inadvertently returning to behavior, you have to tell your spouse, but I wouldn't necessarily let them be the first person you tell because you're full of shame and they're full of anger and it goes to someone else first. So if someone that I was involved with was relapsing every two weeks, and I'll take relapse at its most basic term, as Tammy said, they're returning to previous behavior. They are looking at porn or they're calling ex-girl or whatever they're doing. You know, I'm glad you know. I think it's good that you're hearing about it. I'm so glad it's not a secret for you. But I wonder, do you have any, so two questions that interact. What is your boundary around if this person continues to do this in this way, I need to take care of myself by doing this. Not a punishment, but I don't want to come home to finding out this or that. Or So I'm going to set a boundary, like we need to sleep in separate rooms or you know, whatever it is in a COVID time. But I also heard you say, if I have this right, Tammy, that when I set boundaries, he gets upset. And so you're kind of in a dilemma, which is if you really say, look, this is where I'm at, this is what I'm, what I'm okay with, this is not, I'm willing to hang out in these circumstances, but not in these, that's a boundary. And then he gets upset by your having said, basically, I exist, and this is where the line is for me. How can you set a line? How can you say this is okay and this isn't if he just gets upset and doesn't want to hear that? So Tammy, you can tell everybody, if you don't mind, why do we, why do partners need boundaries? What's the point of a boundary? Um, and why is it important that she maintain them and not give in? Right. I was thinking that very much. Um, the boundaries are to create safety and whether it's physical safety, emotional safety, whatever it is uh, to create safety. And it's interesting, you know, that it seems to cause him distress and then he relapses when he's been to treatment. He has a plan. He knows what triggers are. He knows where to reach out to get help. So, so to me, this feels like he's choosing to go to the old behavior rather than leaning into Oh, this is a problem for me. I'm, you know, I'm feeling shame. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling whatever I'm feeling. I don't like it. So I'm going to call my therapist. I'm going to call my sponsor. I'm going to join a drop in group or whatever. D to me, that feels um, like he's like, he's just, 
he's choosing not to use the tools that he was given and learn to use them better. And, and to that point, by the way, if someone comes back from a treatment center, at least if they come back from our treatment center, they have a whole list of things that they need to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I'm going to go to this online meeting. I'm going to talk to this therapist. I'm going to go to this group. I'm going to check in with the alumni. So your spouse knows exactly what he needs to do or she needs to do. And I would suggest that you look at that and say, well, what were you asked to do when you left? What did you agree to? Because I hear they have these things called aftercare plans and they tell you. So I want to know, were you told to go to meetings, this and that? So I would take a good look at what he or she is actually doing versus what they say they were told to do. And, you know, people don't end up in relapse generally to that degree if they're really following what's on the plan. Cammie, you said something about addicts and what they do. So I thought of this term which we say a lot, but may not be familiar to everyone, which is addicts tend to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. And I think in this case, you know, your spouse is taking a whole lot of permission from the fact that you haven't are not able to, or haven't chosen to set boundaries around what he does. So basically you can come up and do whatever he wants and say, I'm really sorry I did this and then go back out. And there's nothing bad that happens in relationship to that. I think that's a problem. Um, or even me, blaming, like, like what I feel like is right. it's like your boundaries are, are causing me to do this, which is so not the case. And, you know, to, like with our treatment program, we have alumni meeting every Tuesday, Dr. Rob pops in there about once a month, but, but if somebody's really, 55? yeah, if somebody's struggling, guess what? One of the people on the staff is going to say, why don't you hang out for a little bit afterwards and let's talk and let's, let's see what we need to do to get you back on track. So, so um, to me, this feels very much like, you know, it's hey, w w once I had tools, then if I relapse, it's a choice, you know, before I, got into recovery, I didn't have a choice, but once I did, you know, I have a choice whether I choose to go act out or if I choose to do something better for my recovery. So by the way, um, I understand that people might have a slip 60 days. It might be a month or two, something goes by, they look, it's important. You know, it do, we don't just get instant recovery in that way. We struggle, but every two weeks after having been in treatment, I don't, you know, I, I would, you know, I, I don't, feel like you're fully being respected. Um, if he's really, really struggling with that, maybe he needs to go back to treatment. Maybe he needs to live somewhere else. Um, I would not be the part, wanting to be the partner who here, who waits for someone to finish at work out of their office and come into my room and say, I've been acting out. Um, and these days we're often in the same place. So does that mean he's acting out where you are? And yeah, I just think there's a lot of ick here. Um, and if he's been out of treatment for a few months, you might call the treatment center and say, could somebody talk to him? Cause I know we will always put someone forward and say, how can we help? It's been a while, but there should be someone there who's willing to say, I know, I remember you and how can I help with something? I mean, that's they, they, the obligation to our clients getting better. Doesn't stop when they leave. So there should be someone there that can help as well. Um, Tammy, okay. go on. No, we've got a whole bunch of them. So how do we not focus so much on staying sober. I tend to focus on sobriety every day and I'm not sure how to take my mind off this and get into the present moment. Any ideas? Well, it's this three letter word. Um, I know that some of you've heard it and some of you haven't. It's, it's called, it's, and it starts with an F and it ends with an N and it has a U in the middle. A lot of us spend, I think, and, and deservedly so, a lot of time in meditation, journaling, going to meetings, 12 step programs, therapy, but I didn't stop my bad behavior to do nothing but reflect on my bad behavior. I want to have fun. And I think, and Tammy will tell you this from AA in particular, 
a lot of addicts feel like, okay, well then life isn't, it's just going to be a gray fog now because the only thing I enjoyed was that and you've taken it away from me. So I guess I'll just be miserable all the time. And it doesn't really work like that. It's more like when you take that thing away, then you don't need so much volume on everything else. You get a little of this and a little of that, and a little of this, and you put a life together. When we work with clients, they think that the most important thing is that they know what not to do and not do it. And I would say that's half of it. But the other half is what are you going to do and how are you going to do it? And it isn't just therapy meetings, going to the gym, talking to my, it has to be fun. You know, I spent half this last weekend during Christmas planting plants and, you know, working in my garage. And, you know, I had fun this weekend. I, I did go to a meeting. I did talk to people, but I also enjoyed my life. And I think you have to have an equal focus on having pleasure, non-sexual, non-acting out, not, you know, you've got to get up in the morning, have something to look forward to. And it's really important that when you feel like all I do is recovery, and, and I, I assume that means your life is getting better, you need to actually start having a life and enjoying a life. Um, Tammy doesn't know this, but I play Scrabble a lot and different word games online with friends. It seems silly, but I stay connected to them and I'm having fun. And, you know, so there may be lots of little and big ways in, in which you can begin to celebrate your recovery and not just tolerate your recovery. I, I did not know you played Scrabble online, but I'm sure you're very good because you're very good at words. But but not so good. I agree. You know, we and we talked about this um, in uh, webinars last week, too. But, you know, the inner circle is the stuff that we're avoiding doing. The outer circle is bigger and it's the stuff that we sh we want to do to have a healthy and engaged life. When I went to treatment, one of the things the therapist told me was if you don't make recovery fun, you're not going to make it. And so I have been, I was very intentional about finding fun. And so this weekend I, I love to hike. And so I, you know, I hiked three different mountains this weekend, you know, which is like right up my alley, you know, but that's really fun to me, but it, you know, it has to be, it has to be more and doing those things then also, gives me gratitude and then which is good for my recovery so so it all blends together but but it for me the more I focus on the outer circle things and the good for me the more the inner circle stuff just doesn't become important so I was okay. gonna add one thing to that is mm -hmm. um sorry many of you spouses and I completely understand this and I would support you with your feelings when we come home from treatment or we start to work on ourselves and we get this message that you need to enjoy your life too. So let's say in a, in a different world than when we're living in, I might start playing golf or I might start volunteering or I might not just the 12 step stuff, but, or I might join a baseball team. You know, I might do things that are going to take me out into the world away from you that I'm going to enjoy. And it's not unusual for you spouses to say, well, that's what you were doing before. You were just going out and not paying attention to me or not paying attention to the family or whatever it is. And you were doing whatever you wanted. And now you want to keep doing that only it's baseball instead of sex workers. And the answer is yes, because people even in, so let me say it this way. I understand how spouses feel like you don't deserve to go have fun right now. Like you just ruined my life and you know, the roof needs work and our, this is leaking and we got that. And you want you to stay home and spend all your time working on our home and our family because you've abandoned us so profoundly that now you need to come back and make up for it. I completely understand that. And I hope in many ways 
maybe small ways, like we show up on time, we help, we, we, we get involved, we initiate things. Maybe in small ways, ways we can show you that you do come first and that we are learning our lessons. But we also need to feel like life is worth living just for ourselves, separate from you and our family life, separate from our recovery, that there's a little bit of fun out there and that no matter what we've done, you know, life doesn't have to be a punishment for what we've done. You may not want us to have fun. You may not be eager for us to have fun. You may not want to see us going out that door to go play ball. But believe me, we will be better people. We'll be kinder people. We'll be more able to hear your anger and hurt when we have some safe places to go um, where we can just enjoy ourselves a little bit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.